knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Like, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned, there's not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and I have Angela Whitehorn with me, my co-host. And we're going to do another one of our question and answer episodes. And I guess we kind of do one of these every few months. And the reason is, is because we get a lot of people that will send us messages and say, can you talk about this? on an episode, but it's not something that would be an entire episode. Right. And so it's, it's, it's easier just to, let's just tackle a bunch of them. And, and that seems to, to work out well too. I, I kind of enjoy doing these. So uh, yeah, I do too. It, it, uh, um, it's a cool way to feel uh, connected to our listeners. Um, makes it feel a little bit like we're just kind of hanging out, having a conversation with friends. So I like it a lot. And I think a couple of these will have to do with uh, recent episodes, you know, in in some way. But the first one is, and this is something that's been talked about in our group quite a bit, but can you talk a little bit about why we don't do the eat the meat, spit out the bones with heretical teachers? And she is asking specifically about heretical teachers. So what do you think, Angela? Well, you know, the first thing that I want to say about eat the meat, spit out the bones is that um, this is not really a teaching that you are going to find in Scripture. This is a cutesy saying that, guess who says this a lot? False teachers. (laughs) Um, You know, a teacher um, from the Lord who who loves the Lord and um, cares for the flock they're not going to be feeding you bones, um, it's certainly not intentionally. Um, and so, and, and again, the, the question is asking about heretical teachers. You know, if you've got a teacher that's teaching heresy that is a confirmed false teacher, it's, it's far worse than bones. Bones will, you can choke on bones. They can kill you. Um, a, a true uh, teacher of the word is going to be, feeding you solid meat is going to be feeding you and caring for you and putting great effort into making sure that he's not feeding you bones. Um, And so I I would say that, first of all, this idea is not in scripture. And then the second idea that I would say about this is the idea that you will find in scripture 
about teachers who teach heresy and false teachers is that we are to separate, we are to avoid them. Um, the word tells us not even to give them a greeting uh, as they're going on their way. We're not even to wish them a good journey. We do not associate with false teachers. We don't try to pick out little bits of good things here and there. We simply avoid and we go to good, faithful teachers of the Word of God. Amen. And, you know, if maybe you haven't listened to us a lot before, when we're talking about heresy, we're talking specifically about things that are contrary to foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. These are essential doctrines to believe for Christians. And so those things, they're a complete attack on the church and their attack on our Lord. And I think we talked about this on our episode about MOPS when we were talking about um, some of the teachers that the president of MOPS quotes. And so when you've got a teacher that's teaching things contrary to essential doctrines of the Christian faith, then they are not even a believer. This isn't somebody you can learn, uh, you know, biblical wisdom from. And that doesn't right. mean that they won't say anything that sounds wise. I know an atheist that says some very wise things. But this is not somebody that you should be reading at all. And the other thing is, too, even, Angela, when you and I have read some books for the purpose of critique, and I even know intellectually that what they're teaching me is wrong, it still has an effect on me. Mm, and absolutely. so it's still possible to be influenced. I mean, I have to fight like, you know, feeling in one book we read that was just heavy on the law, you know, feeling crushed, you know, even though I know better, these things can, can influence you. And so I just, I think it's unwise. And especially for the reasons that, that Angela said, you know, I, you, you made me think of a comment at uh, my lady's Bible study at church uh, several weeks ago. Um, a wise lady in our group was talking about, you know, sometimes I read even, books by Christian authors, and they're putting forward ideas and theories and uh, admonitions on we should do this, and this is what we ought to be about, and I'm thinking, yeah, 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 and then sometimes I go back and read the Word of God and go, wait, that is contrary to what that person just said, and so it's it's very important to um, test what we're reading against the Word of God, but then, you know, again, we're talking here about teachers who teach um, heresy, teachers who are known false teachers, that's not that's not an opportunity to, hey, just stick with it and just test all the things. No, the Bible tells us to separate. Right. So I think this next one is something that we have talked about, I think a little bit on our discernment episode and even faith in the internet. Um, but this gal asks, how do you handle the tension of loving and engaging in critical conversations with brothers and sisters you believe to be an error doc doctrinally. And she's talking about secondary issues. Um, she said she's really struggling to do this well. And she brought up specifically along the lines of continuationism, cessationism. And that's a, something we've talked about here too. But in the current sphere, giving the abuses of the position of most continuationists that cessationism is a serious biblical error. Um, often mm. spoken of in terms of nearly being heresy. And she says, which I know is an improper assertion, 
but nonetheless one I'm hearing often from the continuationist camp. And well, I think one of the problems is that in these discussions, man, sometimes online we can just say some strong things that are not accurate. Mm, yeah. Um, I think on, on the con- cessationism continuationist front specifically because we have seen some more extreme continuationists, um, charismatics also uh, be linked to heresy specifically, it makes it even more mm-hmm. difficult. But um, anyways, do you have some wisdom for this gal? Well, yeah, especially since, you know, the cessation continuation uh, conversation um, is one that is important to me personally because of a little bit of my background. Um, you know, this person is asking specifically about secondary and tertiary doctrines. And I will say that, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that some of these secondary things can very quickly become primary. They can very clear, quickly um, lead to challenging important foundational doctrines if we're not careful to keep them in, in their place. And I think that's part of why sometimes these conversations can become sort of impassioned because um, oftentimes these secondary errors do bring along with them difficulties that are primary. Um, I I think of uh, um, some conversations that I've had in the past um, on continuation and, um, you know, very often it ultimately leads to accepting uh, extra bi- biblical revelation, which then um, sometimes leads to accepting teachers who are heterodox, which then involves accepting doctrines like kenosis, um, very poor Christology, if not uh, uh, ultimately uh, heretical Christology. And so it's very easy sometimes going into these conversations that we know, okay, uh, there's so much more at stake than just this one seems like this one little doctrine and so we can become impassioned and so um i think one thing that has helped me grow beyond being a little too cagey sometimes on this conversation is to realize that um you know keep the gospel central um don't feel bad about talking about the gospel and bringing it back to the gospel, by the way, because even believers, we we don't grow, outgrow our need for hearing the gospel. So keep that central. And, you know, think about having these conversations in the context of a solid, loving relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, once we've established the gospel is central and we believe the same gospel, then it's a little easier for me to let it go and think, you know what, I do not have to personally correct everyone's theology um, in error. Once I have said, you know, this is my position, this is what I believe, this is what I understand the word to teach, um, because I'm coming from a point of view of Reformed theology, um, you know, if they are not persuaded, that's okay. You know, when you're in the Lord, he is growing us. He is sanctifying us. He is teaching us, um, each of us at different paces, and he uses different things in our lives. Um, there was a time not that long ago that I could not have told you what law gospel distinction was, but I was still in Christ. I know that I was saved. And so, um, loving correction, but then knowing when to let it rest and let it let it lie and let it go. And it's, I don't have to make sure that every ounce of your doctrine is correct. And I think one of the problems is that sometimes we feel like it's all on our shoulders. Like, I need to convince them. Mm. 
and mm. you don't, it's not your job to convince everybody. And, you know, kind of like Angela was talking about, say your piece and pray for that person. Sometimes yeah. it, it there's wisdom in walking away from the conversation. And I've personally had conversations like this and I've chosen to walk away and not bring it up. And this is with actual friends. Mm-hmm. And they've come back to me later and said, hey, you know, I've been studying this and I'd love to talk to you about it more. Mm, yes, absolutely. And you know what, especially since this person specifically asked about continuationism and cessationism, I want to add in, you know, if if this question whether or not the original person asking this meant this I I think we probably do have some listeners who maybe attend a church that might hold to um, some continuation or some soft continuation and maybe you're convinced of um, cessation and so I I would just want to add in here that um, do not make it your goal to change the entire church to correct their doctrine to usurp Serp authority over the elders and what they are teaching. Um, you you need to be respectful of the position of the church, and if it becomes untenable for you to sit under teaching that you strongly disagree with, then it may be time to think about um, trying to find a church that you more closely align with. And if that's not available, then um, submit to the authority that God has given you in your life. It doesn't mean that you have to see eye to eye to them with them on that doctrine, but you don't want to go around uh, um, making it your crusade, you know, to convince everyone in your small group that the church is wrong on continuationism. Um, Remember the question asked, it's a secondary or a tertiary doctrine. And so if if that's true, if it's a solid um, Bible-believing church that preaches the gospel and preaches the law and the gospel faithfully and distinctly, then we really can leave secondary doctrines where they are, and that is secondary. You know, the this particular question, even though I'm kind of, I think we're kind of done talking about mops, this question was emailed to us by so many people that I thought mm. we should probably address it because we, when we did our mops episode uh, last month, we got a lot of feedback and we really did get far more positive feedback than negative. And, Mm. but one of the questions that came up over and over again, and this was even from some of the people that said they appreciated the episode, but the question was, did you go to them first? And we really, I addressed it on a response video that I made, um, answering some of the questions it was impossible for me to respond to every single message but you know this is one of those one of those things that when something is public it is open to public criticism that that's kind mm-hmm, of a mm-hmm. an understood thing um, Matthew 18 is n- is not set up so that you I- I'd be really busy because I'd be like confronting the world you know of of their sin and false doctrine and and whatnot. But that's really, Matthew 18 is is talking about your church and the people that you know and how to confront them of sin. It's not talking about a public preacher or a a Christian public figure that is teaching false doctrine. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. Um, You know, the, the Matthew 18... Um, passage is about believers together in a local body 
And so, you know, when we are talking about a public ministry that is engaging in false teaching, um, you know, we actually have examples in Scripture of Paul calling that out publicly um, and and using some very uh, direct and even harsh language. So um, another thing that I think we could add to this is that many people actually have gone to MOPS privately first many people and it's documented and we did receive a lot of that documentation and take a look at that and so they had been confronted privately already and those um, corrections had been rejected and uh, no not really accepted in in making a change so um, there's really multiple reasons why we didn't go to them privately first Um, but the primary one being it's a public ministry and that is open to public correction. And I'll just even add real quick that as soon as we considered even doing this, I went to two pastors in my life and said, I really want to do this correctly. And they, um, I sought counsel from each of them throughout to make sure that we were being wise in our approach. So, um, and, and I often do that. Uh, We got an email from somebody, and this is more of a personal one, but she did ask if we would address this on an episode. And she says that she's a grandmother and a great-grandmother, which I think is really neat. I want to give a shout-out to her for being a great-grandma. I love that we've got a (laughs) great-grandma listening to us. Um, But she says her situation is that her granddaughter and and her granddaughter's boyfriend are cohabitating. And they are engaged, and they both do confess to have having faith in Christ. And she really wants to know kind of a wise, godly manner in how to address this. And, you know, and I think really, Angela, that it's not uncommon to have similar type situations, that you might have a family member who says, who confesses to be a Christian and maybe is not living in a way that reflects godly living. Mm. Yeah, and so I, th- I think one of the um, best ways maybe to address this, because I do think it's, it's delicate, especially because um, part of how this question is worded makes it sound like possibly they might be new believers. Um, but, you know, one thing that I would do is to encourage the granddaughter and the boyfriend um, to start attending church and um, to get involved in a local local church and um, to look for um, leadership from that local church, um, the pastors and elders um, at that local church. And um, if they are already involved in a church, maybe to talk with the pastor um, or the elders and ask, you know, is there a way that you all can support me in this conversation because um, if they are already part of a church then they are under the authority of those local church leaders and and maybe they can help um, with having a conversation with this couple you know I heard something recently and or I read I'm sorry I read it recently and it was talking about um, a percentage of confessing Christians who now see premarital sex as an option 
And, Mm. you know, I don't know if maybe even some churches aren't addressing it. I'm not exactly sure. Or if it's, I'm sure that the study was something like, are you a Christian? You know, yeah, I'm an American. So of course I'm a Christian. I don't know if it really was like that. So I don't know (laughs) what exactly, what exactly it means. But, and, and I would say too, you know, I had, my grandmother was the most godly woman and she did not hesitate to, with gentleness and grace, confront me if necessary. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm grateful. Now, I wasn't always grateful at the moment. <laughs> um, sometimes I was hurt or defensive, you know, any number of things. But I would say, too, you know, go out to lunch with your granddaughter, maybe with gentleness and grace. I, I agree with Angela. I think the first step is encouraging that they get involved in a good church. Because I think sometimes these things are are so much better dealt with at that level. And even um, since they are engaged, recommending that they get good pastoral premarital counseling. And that would be something that would mm, be discussed, amen. too. So I know it's, it's difficult. It's always a little bit more difficult, I think, when it's family. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, I love that you said pastoral uh, premarital counseling. I think sometimes in these situations, I hear the advice, just encourage them to go on and hurry up and get married. Um, Just move that date up and get married next week and you're good. And I really do, this is just a matter of personal wisdom. I think that it um, is maybe better advice to um, send them the direction of the pastor and and get them involved in that premarital counseling um, and encourage them to um, take the advice of the leaders in their church. And, um, you know, of course, we, we would hope that the leaders will give them godly advice and scriptural advice on um, staying pure for marriage. So um, I, I think that looking for that pastoral care and counsel um, is the best wisdom in this case. You know, this next one, we're not going to be able to get into it too deeply, and it might be really worth a whole episode at some point to dig into women in the church. But um, this this gal is asking, can a woman lead a church group, a congregation, her family when her husband isn't there in prayer? Does this give her spiritual authority? And first of all, spiritual authority comes from our pastors and elders. It doesn't, there's not an automatic spiritual authority that accompanies praying out loud. Right. Spiritual authority isn't coming from doing a particular thing so much as that it's coming from um, being an ordained officer of the church. Now, I mean, this question asks about several different categories. Can women lead a church group or a congregation or a family in prayer? Um, You know, I know in conservative reformed churches, you know, we often have a liturgy and we have elements of worship and we have books of church order that lay out um, who is to be carrying out these um, items in our liturgy. And normally it is um, ordained, Uh, ministers and elders who are to be carrying out those elements of our worship service. But, um, you know, when we're talking about privately in our family, I'm very comfortable saying that um, it's it's fine for a woman to speak out loud and um, lead in prayer. Um, And the the act of praying aloud in that group um, is not taking on spiritual authority. I was thinking exactly what what you said, Angela, that in most Reformed worship services, 
there's not any lay person that's coming up to lead the congregation in prayer. It is the pastor mm. and elders that are doing that. Um, but let's say you have a group from church at your at your home for a a barbecue or something like that. I I don't think there's anything wrong with a woman that might lead in prayer before the meal or that sort of situation. You're not usurping anybody's authority by doing that. And definitely in the family, I think in our own family worship, sometimes my husband asks me to to mm. be the one to pray. So, you know, there there are times where I'm the one that prays in our family. And so I think understanding, even understanding uh, our church polity, understanding just uh, what authority means is kind of a good study that maybe we'll have to dig into more another mm. time. Because I think that that helps this conversation a lot, is understanding where the authority comes from. I don't think we've talked about this in a while, maybe the mysticism episode, but this gal asks, I know you've spoken against people who preach direct revelation from the Lord. Are there exceptions to this? So I'm guessing that, you know, she's talking about people that say, you know, the Lord told me such and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My first gut reaction to this question is to say, no, I I am convinced that there are not exceptions to this. However, I do want to make the distinction that it's important to get our categories right. Um, You know, direct revelation from the Lord. I would call it exactly what you just said, Colleen. Um, The Lord told me and um, here's a specific word. And and that's very different from saying, you know, is God capable of... um, putting something on my heart, leading me by illuminating the word. We certainly do believe that those things happen. But um, a new private revelation, um, it's my personal conviction that no, um, that is not taking place today. Um, You know, a lot of times I hear people throw up, okay, what about dreams? Um, And what about things like that? And um, You know, some of that I'm actually comfortable saying, I'm not sure, but I am confident in saying, I do not believe that that is normative for today. So, and it's certainly not something that we ought to be seeking after and trying to develop as some sort of skill and seeing my relationship to the Lord through that lens as anything sort of primary. My relationship to the Lord and what I know about him and what he tells me about himself and about what his requirements for me um, as a believer are those are in his word, in the scripture that um, that he wrote for us. Um, that is his revelation, and it's complete. And so um, it, it really is a paradigm within cessation. Um, cessationism is just to understand the purpose of scripture in the first place is to reveal um, to human beings to sinners God's plan of salvation it's the purpose of scripture is not to tell me to buy this car instead of that car or to put on this makeup instead of that makeup Um, the purpose of scripture is to reveal God's um, love for sinners and his plan of redemption um, for sinners um, in a way that we couldn't get just from natural revelation. And so when we understand that that's the purpose of Scripture and the purpose of God's revelation and words to us, then we start to understand that 
there really wouldn't be a reason for God to personally speak to me, Angela, by the red toaster. It just falls out of the category when we start to understand that that's what the purpose of God's revelation is. And I think if we were to say, yes, there's an exception, yes, there could be exceptions, then I would feel like that would be saying the word of God isn't sufficient. Absolutely. That there's something that God needs to tell somebody that he neglected in his word. Absolutely. And we, we know that's not the case. When we did our episode on cessationism, we did talk about the different types of cessationism. And we know that, you know, a lot of the men that we look to that, you know, over the last hundreds of years, that some of them held to a type of cessationism. I think Angela and I both do that there, that there is a possibility on some of those things, um, for exceptions. So maybe a, you know, a healing or, um, somebody knowing an unknown language. We sometimes hear those stories from, Mm -hmm. from missionaries, but, but we, but I, but I think prophecy is actually in another category. Agree. And because the the canon of scripture is closed and and that that's just a very a very a different thing if we start saying yes the Lord does give um words from the Lord still as normative. Well, or even as an exception. And I think it's really helpful to think about um cults and um other false churches out there, it's a very, very common belief that we hear directly from God and God is still speaking. We've got new words coming, write them down, extra testaments. Um, You know, this is something the Mormon church believes. Many, many false churches claim to have new revelation from God. And it really is actually uniquely Christian to say God has spoken here in his word. It's complete it's finished. He's told me everything that I need for life and godliness in this book. We don't need new revelation. That really is very special and unique to Christianity. So I think we're just going to do one more. And this will be a little bit different for us because one of the gals in our group said, would you answer a question that would be specifically for Baptists? So I thought, well, why not? We have a lot of Baptist listeners, so we can we can try it. Um, <laughs> so... And I do have some thoughts on this. Both both of us were Baptists. I was so. just going to say, we used to be Baptists. We can right. put our minds back into that world, right? That's right. So she wants to know, should we ever withhold baptism from children who want to be baptized? For example, until we see fruit in keeping with repentance or until they can agree with to a church covenant. So what? So I'll, I'll go ahead and start on this one. One of the things that I appreciate, (laughs) one of the things that I appreciate about the Presbyterian Church, and I'm thinking that it's similar in confessional Reformed Baptist churches. When my children uh, are ready to make a profession of faith and um, commune, because obviously our kids aren't taking communion until they make that official profession of faith, and it's not even up to me. My kids mm. go before the session and they talk to them and that decision is made is made there. And I feel most comfortable with that decision being there. I do think a parent parents could input and tell the session, you know, I really do see fruit of salvation 
from my child or I don't. Um, but I, I think it's, I, I'm glad that that decision is generally left up to the pastor and elders. And I have one friend in a Reformed Baptist Church, and I'm fairly certain that's how it is in her church also. Mm, you know, I I was just going to say that, you know, I actually um, do appreciate our confessional Baptist brothers and sisters on this point, because I do think maybe um, this is handled um, somewhat more similarly um, to us as Presbyterians than maybe just um, a Calvinistic Baptist church or um, and a regular evangelical Baptist church um, that, just as you said, I, I would expect them to be interviewed by the elders. Um, but also, you know, in a confessional Baptist world, there may be a little bit more of an understanding of baptism as a means of grace rather than just a, merely a means of obedience. Um, and, you know, we do have 1689 friends in our group, and I have seen um, – 1689 friends talk about understanding baptism as a means of grace. And so um, I appreciate that part of the confessional Baptist theology in that it helps them be able to say, you know, what we're looking for is a credible profession. And, you know, I contrast that with someone that I know, um, uh, a family member of mine, um, who tells a story of... um, trusting in Christ and then wanting to be baptized. I want to say it was maybe around age nine and um, being interviewed by the pastor and the pastor um, told the parents, um, you know, this, this child isn't ready yet. They just, they just don't, they're not saying the right things yet. They're not ready. And um, this person tells now as an adult I know I was saved, and I know I understood the gospel. I just didn't have the words right. And I immediately started thinking to myself, okay, what words do I have to say now to get baptized? And I think that, you know, the confessional Baptist understanding of baptism as a means of grace really helps against that and helps them just be examining for a credible profession and then understanding that it's it's not so critical that we know for sure um, and so my personal opinion, if I'm trying to put myself back in Baptist shoes, is that um, I would want to see them, I would not want to see baptism withheld if there's a credible profession. But then that's what your elders and pastor are there for, is is to sort of make that determination. Um, and it's it's up to them because they're, they're guarding that sacrament and they're administering that sacrament. It's really not mom and dad administering the sacrament. So um, we trust our leaders in that and, and let them help us in doing the examination. And I think that in most churches that a pastor is going to interview the child ahead of time. I mean, I, would, mm-hmm. yeah, I, mean, I was when I was baptized in an evangelical free church. But I'm gonna I'm gonna share something a little bit a little bit different than what Angela said of a different story. Uh, one of my children, you know, was baptized as a child, but this actually came to later regarding communion, and he made a profession of faith and he communed, and I would have sworn that he was a Christian. Mm. Um, he was very into apologetics. He would share the gospel with people. I thought there was fruit. And 
he's an atheist now, and I don't believe he ever was a Christian. And I remember when, when my kids were young and there would be these conversations with kind of the younger parents and the older parents about when a child should take communion. And the younger parents, you know, had this view, well, as soon as I know my child's given a credible credible profession of faith, even if it's their seven or eight or whatever age. And um, the older parents would say, uh, I think we should wait a little longer. And I would get very frustrated mm. at it, you know. And it, so it's been, that's been a difficult thing for me to kind of work through because of my own experience. And so I think that baptism for a Baptist is similar to what happens for uh, Reformed and Presbyterians in regarding um, being admitted to the table. Now that I do, I do um, agree with you, Colleen. I was just thinking as you were speaking, ah, uh, but that's the table and I, that's different. But yes, I understand what you're saying that, you know, if we're thinking, um, uh, along the lines of our Baptist brothers and sisters, because we're at answering this question for Baptists, then, then um, yes, some caution may be uh, exercised there. And I, I'll just say it once again: this is where we can be thankful for our elders and our pastors because um, their discernment is there to help us, and so, um, and it's really their responsibility to fence um, those sacraments and to make the call. So we can be thankful for them in that. Yeah, and I think that's our our advice at the end of the day is go and talk to your pastor about this mm-hmm. because I think that's that's who you need to talk to. Um, so that that's what we would say about that. Well, we do have some more questions, but uh, because of time, we decided to do a little bit shorter episode uh, since we're trying to get a bunch of episodes recorded since I'll be... <laughs> Uh, probably almost returning from my trip when this comes out. But uh, please feel free to send us questions because we enjoy doing the question and answer episodes. And and I have a few that we can save for uh, another time. Oh, can I, I got to just say one funny thing because I wanted to give a little shout out to somebody. So I had put in the Facebook group. So does anybody have any questions for us that I can add to our question and answer episode? And Hannah Oliver from the Blue Stocking Baptist, if you haven't listened to the Blue Stocking Baptist, it's it's a show very much like ours, but with Baptist hosts. And so Hannah said, so her question was, do you love me? And so I said, Aww. and I said, okay, let me write that one down. And she, and so there was a little back and forth with some of the girls. And I said, well, like, you're going to have to wait till the episode to find out. So. <laughs> Colleen, Anyways. do you ever withhold love from someone who asks it? Do we need to see, you know, fruit <laughs> from Hannah or how, Hannah we, Oliver? Are you listening? We love you. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely love. We love Hannah. And they're doing such a great job on their podcast. Uh, one of the, you know, I, I love that. Both of our podcasts are just different, even though they're mm-hmm. two, they're two girls, they're Baptists. And I don't even think of it as we're, you know, the Presbyterian girls should tune in to us and the Baptist ones to them. I think there should be crossover for both. But one of the things they've done that's been really excellent is they've done some episodes on Mormonism. Mm-hmm. So I will link their podcast in our episode notes because 
it's um it the mormon mormonism episodes have been really good all the episodes have been good so yep hannah we do love you and we think other people should tune in and get to know you through the podcast if you all want to hear hannah oliver's testimony um, I recorded her testimony on a different podcast, the New Geneva podcast. Um, we have a series on that podcast called Reformation Stories. And Hannah Oliver was our first rep- Reformation story. And she talks about d- using apologetics on Mormon on Mormons. And it's a wonderful story. So uh, shout out to Hannah Oliver. And I can Oliver. link that. I can link that in the episode notes too. I'd forgotten that you guys did that. So yeah. I'll link that in the episode notes also. She's very well versed in, in Mormonism. She's really, really studied it and which I appreciate because that's been something that I, that was like in my teenage years was a passion since there were so many Mormons in my school. I even went to, I used to go to these meetings that were for ex-Mormons. I don't know how I ended (laughs) up going to them, but they were, they were led. Oh, I, I remember, I actually remember now one of my classmates in high school, his father led the meetings. And so I had gone to his father for help um, because I was sharing the gospel with Mormons, and his father was very knowledgeable about Mormonism. I don't even remember if his father was a ex-Mormon or not, but he was knowledgeable and led these these meetings. But it was so neat to go to those. I didn't really go to do any talking. I went and got to hear these amazing testimonies of people that had come out of Mormonism. So, hmm. Well, you know, since we're having the Hannah Oliver show right now, I want to say a couple more things that I love about Hannah Oliver before we <laughs> close out. Oh, yeah, the, please do. Two things I want to tell you guys about Hannah, and go check out the Blue Stocking Baptist. But number one, if you want to see what a woman who studies to find the truth looks like, go, go meet H- Hannah Oliver and talk to her. She has an amazing work ethic when it comes to wanting to dig into a theological topic and really understand for herself, and she is willing to have her theology challenged and changed and reformed by the Word of God, and boy, that's an amazing role model. But the second thing I want to say about Hannah is that she has the softest heart um, and she is willing to say hard things in hard places, but she tries ever so hard to be a peacemaker, to be kind, to be gentle in her polemics. And she, she really has a heart to reach out to others and share the truth in a way that is winsome and can be accepted. So fantastic role model, fantastic sister in Christ. So yes, Hannah Oliver, we do love you. Well, amen to all of that. And you know, that this is one thing the group is so great at. Sorry, guys, you still can't come in. But the, <laughs> um, is we have really gotten to know some amazing women. And I just enjoy sometimes going and reading some of the conversations, but also getting messages of people saying, Hey, you know, I found your podcast a year ago, and I've just been studying theology. And, you know, that that's why we're here. So I'm, I'm always encouraged by that. So feel free, if you do want to email us a question, you can email us at theologygals at gmail.com, or you can send us a message through our Facebook page. Um, or And you can even be a man, you know, we'll, we'll answer your question. We won't let you in the group, but we'll answer your question on air. I actually got an email from a man 
no, two men this week mm. about our, not with questions. Um, I was but, just uh, going to say, please tell me you didn't exercise any authority, Colleen. <laughs> uh, they it was um i think they really appreciated our episode with scott keith because mm. of the emphasis on fatherhood which which was in- encouraging i've gotten a lot of a great feedback from that so well yeah. thank you so much for joining us um i i want to just remind you of a couple things we do have theology gals shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and all of that and there's a link on our facebook page and I can put a link in the episode notes, too. And if you want to support us, what we're doing, um, any money that comes in just goes to covering our expenses and maybe upgrading our equipment and um, just the expenses associated with podcasting. But we have a couple ways you can donate to us, Patreon and PayPal. So you can do like support us monthly or give us a one-time donation. And, you know, we have, I and I do want to just say thank you to everyone that does support us. We have some people that just give a few dollars a month, but it really does help to cover our expenses. And I'm very grateful for that. So, well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week.